Chapter 11, Part 2 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Fight for Young Dunpo First Marines in Position During the morning phase of Charlie Company's attack, Hawkins and the others on Hill 118 were racked by frustration of a type seldom experienced by Marines in the history of the Corps. It will be recalled that the ground between Kimpo and Yongdungpo Highway and the Han River was not cleared in the course of 1-5's attack on Hills 80 and 85 on 19 September. Since the 5th Marines unit had withdrawn to cross the Han at Huanju, and since Charlie Company of 1-1 had chosen a southern route in recapturing the Twin Heights, enemy bands in hiding along the riverbank were unmolested. The potential danger in the area was not realized, however, until too late. From Kimpo came a weasel of the 1st Signal Battalion, the crew calmly stringing wire into the 1st Marine Zone as the vehicle rattled along the highway. Just sort of the Kalchon Bridge, the little tractor struck a mine and was ambushed by a party of North Koreans. The power-packed Marine infantry on Hill 118, less than a thousand yards away, watched helplessly as the communication men were either killed or captured. No sooner had the Reds disappeared into the brush with two prisoners than a Marine truck, belonging to Alpha Engineers, cruised down the highway with four unsuspecting passengers. Captain Barrow ordered his troops to fire over the vehicle, hoping that the driver would hear the bullets in the air and turn back. But the truck continued on into the ambuscade, where it was stopped by an enemy fusillade. The engineers piled out and plunged into a rice paddy in an attempt to escape. Three of them made it. The fourth, Private First Class Clayton O. Edwards, was tracked down and captured. Although the Marine was out of ammunition and already wounded, one heroic warrior of the NKPA stepped forward and bayoneted him in the shoulder after he had surrendered. Edwards later escaped from a POW train, fleeing before the UN drive into North Korea. Not long after these incidents, Captain Richard F. Bland led Baker Company of 111 through the area and secured Hill 55 and the nearby villages on the bank of the Han. The North Koreans pulled out and crossed the Kelchon to join the Yongdungpo garrison. With fighting going on to the right and left, 3-1 sat quietly on Lookout Hill during 20 September without suffering a casualty. An occasional break in the orange and black pall over Yongdungpo allowed the Marines a glimpse of the wrecked railroad and highway spans, which once had bridged the Han to Seoul. The rock capital was still a long way off for the 1st Marines and the 2nd Battalion, now on the regimental right and in its sixth straight day of the assault, was more concerned with the immediate foreground. After smashing the red attack in the morning of the 20th, Sutter's unit jumped off at 0645 against scattered resistance along the Inchon Seoul Highway. The assault elements reached the bridge spanning the western branch of the Kalchon at 1230, and the battalion commander immediately ordered engineers to inspect the long concrete structure. It was reported to be in good enough condition to support M26 tanks for the attack on Yongdungpo the next day. While the battalion dug in on the west side of the stream, 
The Marines eyed the 2,000-yard stretch of highway leading ahead to a second span, bridging the Calchon's eastern branch at the very edge of the blazing town. A high ridge on the right of the road, technically in the 32nd Infantry Zone of Action, was a beehive of North Korean activity. Anticipating the effect of this commanding position on his attack the following day, Sutter contacted Lt. Col. Charles M. Mount, U.S. Army, commanding the 2nd Battalion of the 32nd, for permission to shell the height. The Army officer approved the request at 1300, but more than seven hours elapsed before the necessary clearance filtered through 7th Division, 10 Corps, and 1st Marine Division to reach the 11th Marines. When the howitzers finally opened up, darkness prevented effective observed fire from being delivered on the enemy's strong point. Out of sight and earshot of 2-1 during 20 September, Colonel Charles E. Beauchamp's 32nd Regiment, in its first day of actual combat, paid with 7 killed and 36 wounded in taking Tongduk Mountain and part of Coppermine Hill. Using the Incheon-Angyang Road as an MSR, the Army unit lost three tanks in a field of over 150 wooden box mines. Beauchamp himself narrowly escaped death or serious injury when his jeep struck one of the explosives, killing the driver and wounding a radio operator. By nightfall, the 32nd was deployed far out on the right of the Marines on the Incheon Seoul Highway, and the 31st Infantry, having landed at Incheon earlier in the day, went into position even farther southward. Assault of Yongdungpo There was no infantry action during the night of 20 to 21 September. Both sides were steeling themselves for the ordeal each knew would commence at dawn. The Red Commander and Yongdungpo threw up formidable earthworks to block the approach over the Kalchan from hills 80 and 85 in the northwest, and he concentrated a strong force between the two tributaries in the southwest. That edge of town facing due west, though most defensible, he left unguarded, with the result that a single Marine rifle company would hasten his demise. Marine artillery thundered all night long, and the glare from flaming Yongdungpo rolled back the darkness in an ever-broadening arc. Shortly after dawn, the Marines of Company B, 1st Battalion, threaded across the wreckage of the Kalchan Bridge under the cover of machine gun, mortar, and tank fire from Hill 85. Reaching the eastern bank, the attackers swept over a knoll overlooking the Han on the left, which the North Koreans had left undefended. The assault inched forward toward the town, first through sporadic small arms resistance, then into a deadly crossfire from several automatic weapons. Baker Company was now confronted by two dikes which the Reds had converted into a main line of resistance. One of the barriers paralleled the Han River north of Yongdungpo, the other ran the entire length of the western edge of town. Where they met to form a point facing the Kalchan Bridge and the Marine Advance, a reinforced company of North Koreans was deployed across each levee in strong, mutually supporting positions. Captain Bland chose wisely in directing his attack against the northern dike alone. By this decision, he not only kept his left flank and rear protected by the Han, but also maintained local superiority in numbers over the Reds immediately confronting him. Grinding slowly forward with heavy casualties, 
Company B rolled up the length of enemy entrenchments on the levee and pushed eastward 2,000 yards by afternoon. The Marines then formed a line with their backs to the Han and shot it out with the Communists on the second dike at a range of 500 yards. At this point, the attack stalled and the fight settled down to one of attrition. Casualties on both sides mounted rapidly under the ceaseless exchange of machine gun, mortar, and tank fire. Part of Bland's difficulty owed to the random deployment of all opposing forces at this time, as indicated on the charts of the 11th Marines. Noting that Company B's positions were along the Han north of Yongdungpo, the artillerymen expressed reluctance to fire on the enemy-held dike to the rear in answer to Lieutenant Colonel Hawkins' repeated requests from his OP on Hill 85. It was a matter of the howitzers pointing generally north towards Seoul, while Bland's outfit, at the moment, was trying to head south. The misunderstanding was finally cleared up late in the afternoon, and Marine Air joined the artillery in pounding the southern barrier. The Reds held stubbornly under the battering, and at darkness, Hawkins sent Charlie and weapons companies across the bridge to form a perimeter with Baker for the night. The narrative will now switch to the action in the 2nd Battalion zone, leaving the separate attack of Company A to be taken up in detail later. Sutter's unit jumped off at 0630 on the 21st with Companies D and E in the assault. The infantry crossed the first bridge without incident, then fanned out to move on the second. It was no surprise when the North Koreans on the intermediate ridge to the right of the highway suddenly threw heavy fire across the Marine front, but it was disconcerting to Sutter that his calls for artillery fire met with the same delay as the previous day. He therefore shelled the high ground with attached 4.2-inch mortars on his own initiative before ordering companies E and F to attack the enemy bastion. Meanwhile, Captain Welby Cronk led Company D forward on the left of the highway against a strongly defended dike fronting the Kalchon's western branch. Progress was slow and casualties severe, but the Marines closed to within 100 yards of the barrier by noon. Then they dug in and slugged it out, while the 2nd and 3rd platoons of Charlie Company tanks alternated in ripping the Communist trenches with 90mm delayed-action shells. Heavy fighting continued on the right side of the road until evening. Companies E and F fought partway up the slopes of the ridge and suffered heavily during the close exchange with the Reds on the crest. Since the enemy was still in control of most of the high ground at dusk, Sutter ordered the assault units to withdraw into 2-1 zone and dig in with Dog Company. VMF 214 covered the hot disengagement, one of the most difficult of all tactics, under a masterful job of forward air controlling by 1st Lieutenant Norman Vining, Sutter's FAC. After bombing and rocketing from 75 to 100 yards beyond the Marine front, the Corsairs closed to within 30 yards for strafing runs to shield the retracing line of infantry. The seventh straight day in the assault had cost the 2nd Battalion 11 killed and 74 wounded, bringing its total casualties since D-Day to 28 KIA and 226 WIA. Partially because of these crippling statistics, Colonel Puller, at 1530 on the 21st, had committed 3-1 to the relief of the battle-weary outfit. 
The reserve battalion swung northeast from Lookout Hill to flank the enemy dike positions facing Company D from the eastern tributary. Crossing the Calchon against light resistance, the attackers ran into trouble at the fortified levees fronting southwestern Yongdungpo. After heavy machine guns of 3-1 bested a battery of communist automatic weapons, companies G and I, the latter on the right, attacked astride the stream branch. Progress was slow, but at a cost of 11 killed and 18 wounded, the Marines rolled up the heavily defended dike and reached the bridge entering the city. Darkness fell with the 3rd Battalion entrenching to the north of the 2nd, both units along the left side of the Inchon Seoul Highway. To the south of the 1st Marines, the 32nd Infantry met with considerable success during its attack over a mountainous 9-mile front. The 1st Battalion on the right mopped up Coppermine Hill, then seized the high ground around Anyang against light sniper fire. In the left of the Army Zone and adjacent to the Marines, 232 took its objective south of Yongdungpo against light to moderate resistance. Thus, at a cost of 2 KIA, 28 WIA, and 1 MIA, the regiment succeeded in cutting the railroad and highway leading from Suwon to Seoul via Anyang and Yongdungpo. Difficulties in Marine Army liaison and coordination throughout 21 September stem from the fact that neither realized the size of the gap between them. The map will show that the 32nd's route of advance was planned to miss Yongdungpo by two miles, not even coming close to the NKPA strongpoint which gave the 2nd Battalion 1st Marines so much trouble. Able Company on a Limb With the coming of night on 21 September, there was grave apprehension in the 1st Marines over the fate of one rifle company. In the course of the day, the Reds had staved off major penetrations by two Marine battalions in the southwest and the better part of another in the northwest. Incredibly enough, one Marine unit of some 200 men had swept through the space in between and cleared the very heart of Yongdungpo, so that when darkness fell, the isolated force was anchored in the rear of the enemy a good mile and a half beyond the closest friendly units. Company A of the 1st Battalion had jumped off from below Hill 80 on the morning of the 21st after Baker Company was slowed by the dike positions east of the Kalchon Bridge. In committing the unit to an attack through a mile of open rice paddies, Lt. Col. Hawkins was gambling with high stakes for surprise. Captain Barrow employed the classic approach march formation. Forward on the left was 2nd Lt. John J. Sword's 3rd Platoon, on the right front was the 2nd, under 2nd Lieutenant Donald R. Jones. To the left rear was 1st Lieutenant William A. McClellan's 1st Platoon, with the dual mission of Company Reserve and Flank Guard. In the right rear were the 60mm mortars, a section of heavy machine guns of Weapons Company, and the Assault Squad. Light machine gun sections were attached to each rifle platoon, so that they could be employed to the front or flanks on a moment's notice. Barrow's six-foot, four-inch frame loomed between the two assault platoons. To say that these Marines were tense and expectant as they plodded across the broad, flat expanse would be an understatement. Far off on the left and right, small arms crackled continuously at the bridge entrance to Yongdungpo. Marine planes were swooping down in the distance, 
the hollow eruptions of their ordnance adding to the incessant rumbling of artillery and mortars. Almost hidden from view by the high-grain stalks, Company A swept through the rice paddies against no opposition whatever. Its advance was rapid until the 3rd platoon was slowed by muck, which marked the beginning of the Kalchan's bed. Heads craned eagerly to the front and flanks as progress dropped to a snail's pace for several minutes. The crucial moment seemed certainly at hand when the assault line stepped forward from the concealment of the rice and waded into the stream, completely exposed to the wide bank and parallel dike beyond. Still, not an enemy shot was fired. Dripping mud and water, the green-clad figures in the van surged ashore and over the dike. The rest of the men followed, unbelieving, close behind. Retaining the same tactical formation, ready to engage in any or all directions, Company A marched into Yongdungbo. The first buildings were 100 yards ahead of the levee. Barrow channeled his advance astride the main east-west street. Although buildings and dwellings were many, the layout was not dense, and the Marines were able to keep their ranks open and enjoy good all-around observation. The place seemed empty and dead. By noon, Abel Company was several hundred yards within the town, its careful search of buildings and side streets having failed to uncover a flicker of enemy resistance. Barrow could tell from the din far out on either flank that he was well ahead, eastward, of Baker Company and the 2nd Battalion. He radioed for instructions, and Hawkins told him to keep going. Halfway through town, Barrow noted on his map that the Inchon Seoul Highway was now converging on his right, so that it would meet the company's attack route just east of Yongdungpo. Because of the furious clatter along the stretch of highway out of sight on the southwest, 2-1's fight, he ordered the reserve platoon to shift from the left side to the right. No sooner had McClellan completed the move than his men spotted an enemy column advancing down the highway in the direction of 2-1's front. The Reds were chanting a spirited military air when the 3rd platoon opened up and cut the formation to ribbons. Simultaneously, the two lead platoons began firing on individuals and small groups in the streets of eastern Yongdungpo. Astonished at the sight of a large marine force in the very heart of their bastion, most of the North Koreans took to their heels. But there were other Reds, in the rear with the gear, who obviously did not recognize the attackers. After glancing curiously from distant streets, they went calmly about their business. Sword's 3rd platoon barreled through town on the left of the street and broke into the open. A dike topped by a road lay across the marine front, and the platoon leader led his men into a hasty defense on top. From this position, they could cover the vast sand spit with its airfield and approaches to Seoul. Looking north, they observed a large body of enemy soldiers withdrawing from Baker Company's zone onto the spit. Light machine guns took the North Koreans under fire immediately, and the section of heavies sent forward by Barrow joined in shortly afterwards. Caught by surprise in the open, the Red Outfit suffered heavy casualties before the survivors could fan out and disappear. The rest of Company A moved up on the right of the 3rd Platoon, occupying more of the dike and the junction with the Inchon Seoul Highway. 
It was at this point that Company A, if it could hold the ground, had an opportunity to deal the young Dunpo garrison a mortal blow. For the road junction turned out to be the enemy's supply center. Across the intersection lay what appeared at first glance to be a huge coal pile. Actually, it was a camouflaged mountain of ammunition. During a firefight with a small group of North Koreans taking cover behind the explosives, one Marine set off the dump with a grenade. The whole countryside shook with the detonation, and the great cloud of smoke that shot into the air marked Able Company's isolated position for the rest of the 1st Marines on the outskirts of town. While part of the unit dug in on the dike, the remainder inspected and cleared the area around the intersection. A five-story building on the near corner was jammed with captured U.S. Army medical supplies, field equipment, ammunition, and enemy ordnance. The Marines could not use the heavy caliber ammo, but they did help themselves to blood plasma for their wounded. Throughout the afternoon, the Reds made repeated attempts to regain the vital area by throwing small assault parties against Able Company from the south. Each attack was smashed, and darkness found the Marines firmly entrenched on the dike, hoping only that their limited supply of ammunition would last throughout the night. A weak SCR-300 battery prevented further communications with the battalion CP. Young Dungpo secured. If the Marine Corps schools ever enlarges its varied curriculum to include the defense of a dike, Captain Barrow's tactical disposition on the night of 21 to 22 September 1950 can be taken as a unique precedent. Able Company's commander chose to defend a 100-yard stretch of the levee just north of the intersection. Here the macadam road ran out 25 feet above ground level, and the incline on either side sloped gently. The Marines staggered their foxholes alongside, some high on the slope, others low. Machine guns and bars were emplaced along the shoulders at the top so that automatic fire could be directed in volume in any direction. Since all of their ammunition had been fired during the afternoon counterattacks, the 60mm mortar crews laid aside their tubes and went into the line as infantry. Company A's perimeter for the night thus had the shape of a long sausage, with the 3rd platoon in an arc at the northern end, the 1st defending the west side, and the 2nd in position on the east. From their foxholes on the top and sides of the levee, the Marines commanded the sand spit, the road on the dike, Yong Dungpo's eastern exits, and the vital intersection with the Inchon Seoul Highway. Fortunately, they had dug their holes deep. At dusk came the telltale rattling, revving, and clanking from the direction of 2-1's front, and five unescorted T-34s loomed on the Inchon Seoul Highway, headed toward the intersection. They turned left just short of the crossroads and proceeded in column along a street that paralleled Company A's dike. The Marines on the levee crouched low in their holes. Cruising majestically like a file of battleships, the tank column cut loose with a hail of machine gun fire and salvos of 85mm shells at a range of 30 yards. Able Company's rocket gunners, whose total experience with the 3.5-inch launcher was limited to the firing of a few practice rounds, popped up from their holes and let fly. One of the tanks exploded in a convulsion of flame and smoke, 
Its turret twisted askew as though some giant hand had torn the steel cap from the body. The other four tanks continued to the end of the perimeter, then reversed course past the marine line a second time, pumping a steady stream of steel into the western slope of the dike. Reaching their starting point at the Inchon Sol Highway, they turned back and made another round trip, with marine rocket fire damaging two more vehicles and sending them limping off the field. The remaining pair, upon completing the second circuit, again reversed course and made a final pass, the fifth, on the marine lines. Clearing the perimeter, they rumbled into town and disappeared. Fantastic as it may seem, Company A sustained a single casualty, a concussion case, during the half hour of sustained heavy caliber pounding at pistol ranges. Tremendous muzzle velocity had embedded the 85mm armor-piercing shells deep in the slope of the dike in the split second before each explosion, and marine foxholes proved to be sufficient protection against the raking machine gun fire. Between 1900 and 2100, it was relatively quiet. McClellan's platoon, facing town, killed a few Reds attempting to remove stores from the five-story building. Then the long-expected report reached Barrow by sound power telephone. Swartz platoon, manning the northern arc of the perimeter, could hear a large enemy force approaching its front. The counterattack hit shortly after 2100. Transmitting a running account of the sharp firefight by phone, Sword assured his company commander that he was having no trouble. After 15 minutes of failure, the Reds withdrew for a breather. They struck in the same place half an hour later and were thrown back again, despite any inspiration derived from a display of multicolored flares and wild cries of Banzai. By midnight, the 3rd platoon had withstood five such onslaughts, each appearing to be in about company strength. Before the last attack, a captive Red officer escaped from Company A's POW compound east of the dike and ran northward into the blackness, shouting repeatedly, according to Barrow's rock interpreter, Don't attack anymore. They're too strong for you. Apparently, his advice was heeded, much to the relief of the Marines, whose ammunition supply was becoming dangerously low. At midnight, following the enemy's fifth unsuccessful attempt against Sword's position, the fight for Yongdungpo came to an end for the 1st Marines. There was scattered firing throughout the night, but the North Koreans, denied access to their vital supplies, quickly withered on the vine. At dawn, Company A counted 275 dead and 50 automatic weapons around its perimeter, principally in front of the 3rd platoon. The four T-34 tanks which had withdrawn into town were found abandoned. The 1st and 3rd battalions attacked at 0800 against negligible resistance and converged on the isolated unit, making the historic link-up in short order. The enemy was gone, except for the hundreds of dead that littered the borders of the city. He had left behind practically all of his heavy armament, equipment, and supplies. Continuing the advance on the 22nd, the 1st Marines surged eastward beyond Yongdungpo, then spent the remainder of the day reorganizing and patrolling. On the 23rd, 
The regiment moved almost unopposed to the bank of the Han, 3-1 seizing Hill 108, which dominated the battered bridges. Later that night, Puller received orders to effect the river crossing early next morning. End of chapter 11, part 2, read by Aaron Bennett.